Welcome to Grow Course number six as we dive into Ephesians chapter three this evening. A welcome to those as well who are listening via the recording. Glad you can join us for this Grow Course. I'm excited. We have some wonderful material tonight. God's Word, and I trust He's going to speak to us tonight through His Word. He's going to use your study in that process. But as we've done in the previous courses, we've often start off, started off with a grow photograph. But instead of a grow photograph, that is a still photo that would illustrate the principle of growth and what we're trusting God for in this grow course. We're going to have a grow video tonight instead. Because part of growing, it's not just growing and understanding God's word, but it's growing as well and coming to love God's word, to appreciate God's word as well. And I have a little video. We're going to show about five minutes of it. And I think it's going to help capture just that. What I have is a video that I was watching this week um, about missionaries who are delivering the word of God in the vernacular native tongue to a tribe in Indonesia. This tribe has never had the word of God in their own native language. And I want you to see, hopefully you can see, if you can't see back there, you could hear their reaction as the moment has finally arrived. The word of God, the New Testament, in their language for them to read and to hear. So with that, I'm going to try to turn it around here. I'm going to get off the mic. We'll stop with the recording. I'm sorry, those who are listening, but we'll resume in a few minutes. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, guys. It was an emotional video, but let me just recap for you. Uh, <laughs> do the dance. Oh, boy. Cindy, you want to come on up? <laughs> oh. To see the reaction and just to see the response of the people as this plane flew in and they came with a pallet of New Testament Bibles and just see the tears, the celebration of literally hundreds of people. They go on to interview a couple of pastors who had never in their whole life, these were older pastors, some from the 60s, to be quite old obviously for this tribal group, to see the tears as they realized the word of God was in their language. And it was precious. And just the emotion from the young to the old, that this was a moment in history for the people. This church had gathered in the hillside to receive this precious gift from God. And as I watched this video, I thought, wow, is that my response? As I open up my English Bible. For like me, probably for most of us, it's not most of the time, is it? There's a Bible that anywhere you look, You probably have several of them in your own home. Yet here we have the Word of God, 66 books of the Bible, three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, that have been translated into English, to Spanish, whatever your native tongue is, written by dozens of authors over a time span of 1,500 years. first book was probably written 3,500 years ago. And we have it today. God has preserved his word for us today in its entirety. Not only that, he's allowed it not to be preserved, but through the martyrdom of a number of individuals in church history, allowed it to be translated into the vernacular, into the English, that we could have it and read it today. I just don't think we marvel enough that, do we? That we have access to God's word We individually each have one. There's not one scroll somewhere in South Florida. Someone has one copy of one manuscript that we need to gather around, find, and hear. No, we can have a personal copy to study daily. So I just want us to prize the Word of God, and that video is going to help you do it, so you'll have to hear from me instead. May that be your attitude too. Lord, you have been so good to us to preserve your Word over all these years for me today that I have personally in my own home, can study it, I can come here, open my Bible, and have access to your revelation. So with that in mind, let us pray. Let us just let God do a work in our hearts, just thankfulness and gratefulness for what he's done in preserving his word for us today, that we can study it here this evening. 
All right, let's pray. Well, Lord, I do thank you. Thank you for technology, even when it doesn't quite work right. Oh, Lord, thank you that we do have your word tonight. And it will not malfunction. (laughs) We have your word, which you have preserved for us in English, that we could read it tonight, that we can study it and understand it. So, Lord, thank you for preserving your word. Thank you for the men and women you've used in history to preserve your word, even to the cost of their life and their lives. So, Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this context to study your word. Engage our hearts this evening. Holy Spirit, illumine your word that we may understand, bring clarity and understanding, bring application as well tonight as we plumb the depths of Ephesians 3 or as we attempt to do so by your grace. So let help us tonight. We come tired. We come weary. We come with minds that are prone to wander. Bind our wandering heart to thee tonight as we study. Give us uncommon focus and concentration as we speak now, as we study, as we answer the questions before us. As we get to know your word and let's get to know you better as you have revealed yourself, your purpose, and your character through your word. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, each and every one of you, for being here. Thanks to those who may be new with us. You're joining our inductive Bible study on Ephesians. This is our sixth class, so you're just jumping right in. And believe that I've given out a homework assignment for those who may be new. So each one of you should have your homework assignment. We're going to go through that in just a minute here as we go and look at Ephesians chapter 3. But just a little overview make sure we get Ephesians. We want to make sure Ephesians is in our mind. We want to be able to chart it out and have it in our mind, fixed in our mind, so we understand the context of what we're studying tonight. So as we've been talking about the last several months, Ephesians has six chapters. It's really going to be divided into the first three chapters and the second three chapters, right? The first three chapters are what we call primarily the indicatives, right? The truths, what is true about us in Christ, The second three chapters are what? They are the imperatives, right? What we are to do, how we are to live. As it says in Ephesians, how we are to walk based on these truths that we're studying. So we're going to study the last of these three indicative chapters, so to speak. And then next month, we're going to get into a lot of Paul's application, how we then should live, the implications of the truths that we are studying. So a couple months ago, we started with Ephesians 1, right? We looked at spiritual blessings that we have as those who are in Christ Jesus. These blessings that have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And then at the end of chapter 1, what does Paul do? He concludes with a... With a what? A prayer. A prayer, right. The first chapter really is like a... um, a, a doxology or praise, but he ends with the prayer that these spiritual blessings that we have in Christ may be realized in our heart, that we may have, as he calls, an enlightened heart to understand all the riches of what we have in Christ. And then we move to chapter 2 of Ephesians, and really it seems like the Apostle Paul, the author here, is elaborating on what he's just mentioned in chapter 1. He spends the first 10 verses of chapter 2, really elaborating on the truth found in chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, that we have been redeemed by Christ's blood. So he walks us through that. We've been saved by grace through faith, right? We have been reconciled to God. That's the vertical reconciliation, right? That's the first, what, 10 verses of Ephesians 2. And then he goes into, from verses 11 through 22, another long paragraph in which he describes that which he first mentioned in Ephesians 8 through 10. That is, the Father's plan to reconcile Jew and Gentile and from Jew and Gentile create one new man, one new humanity. And there we see the horizontal reconciliation. So the vertical and the horizontal reconciliation affected by Christ's death upon the cross in Ephesians 2. And now we get to Ephesians 3. Oh, it is deep. It is wonderful. 
And I have asked my friend Bentley Crawford to be able to read Ephesians 3 to us so you can hear it. So Bentley, come up here, why don't you just read it for us, huh? In its entirety, just to wash our minds here with the word of God. Thanks, bud. Okay, Ephesians 3, starting with verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my mystery, my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Thank you, Bentley. I love that conclusion, that doxology. That has to be one of the best in the Bible right there. That is powerful. We're going to talk about that a little later on. But first, we have entered in chapter 3. We concluded chapter 2 with the statement that God has made one humanity the church, and he has indwelled the church, his people, with his spirit. They are a dwelling place for God through his spirit. And then we see and move to chapter 3, verse 1. And Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And there's a little dash, at least in the ESV. What's happening here? It's Paul is ending on this soaring note about The church, this one new man being filled with this Holy Spirit, being a dwelling place for his Holy Spirit. And then he goes into chapter 3. It's almost like he stops in his tracks. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, not of Nero, not the Romans, but of Christ Jesus. I'm having you Gentiles. Then he stops. Gentile. He pauses. It's like, it almost like it triggered something in his mind. Gentiles. And then what we have here, this point on, is what really amounts to a parenthetical statement, keyed off by his own use of the word Gentile, as if he wants the readers to know that he is no prisoner by accident. No, no, I'm the Apostle Paul who's been given a Gentile commission. A commission. I have been sent to the Gentiles. So then he takes off in the following verses to speak about this revelation that has been given him. Okay? To be this envoy, to be this special commission commission, 
begun the special commission to the Gentiles. And where does this commission end? It ends in verse 13. So in one sense, verses 2 to 13 is one long parenthetical statement. And notice verse 14. Same language is picked up from verse 1. We see a repeat once again. For this reason. He's picking up the prayer that he started, apparently, in verse 1. So what is he doing? He's completing his prayer. I believe his prayer for the Spirit who indwells you, that you may be strengthened with the Spirit within you. So that's kind of the overview structure as I see Ephesians 3. He starts the prayer. He mentions who he is. He mentions the word Gentile. And then he has this parenthetical, when I say parenthetical statement, I don't mean an important statement, okay? <laughs> it's a very critical aside that he gives, an explanation in regards to his ministry that really fits into this theme of Ephesians, which I'll talk about. And then he goes back to his prayer in verse 14 and resumes it. So there you go. There's chapter 3. I've really already alluded to your first question there in the homework. It says, in what verse is the prayer for spiritual strength, that's the ESV heading, at the end of chapter 3, actually begin? Is it at Ephesians 3.14 or earlier? I think I've already answered that there. I believe it's verse 1. What are your textual clues? Well, there's a few. First of all, the same phraseology, for this reason. You notice as well, verse 1, there is no verb. (laughs) That verb isn't found in verse 14, really. For this reason, I bow my knees, okay? But he never gets there. (laughs) Because verse 1 takes him to verse 2 in this statement about his commission, right? With that in mind, let's go to question 2. Now delve into the content. Question number 2, what is the function of Ephesians 2 through 13 in this chapter? What does Paul want his readers to know about himself in this parenthetical statement? And why is he so eager to tell us? Is Paul just a little ADD, a little narcissistic? About to pray? Enough about you guys. Let's talk about me now, shall we? <laughs> what's, what's his purpose in all this? What do you think? What do you come up with? Yes, Mickey. Yes. Mm-hmm. Not lose heart, even though he's a prisoner. Writes under God's sovereignty and purview. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus, not of Nero. He knows he's in control. He's speaking to his suffering people as he is suffering himself. Yes, and there's a point to all this, isn't there? Yeah. Even to his suffering. It's good. Good answer. What others? Other answers? There's multiple things here we can draw out from this. What else do you see here? Why might he be, in a sense, almost introducing himself, who he is in his ministry, or at least reminding his readers of that? Okay, it's credibility, huh? Great. So for, so, show, showing forth his credibility, yes? Exactly. May even be introducing himself to some people who may be unacquainted with who he is. I don't know. Some of the readers right, as well. But like what you said, you said, this is something I'm sharing with you. This wasn't just a deuce. This wasn't just as a result of my great learning. No, what I'm sharing with you, my commission and the mystery I'm about to share with you was received by revelation from God himself. He is claiming nothing less than divine revelation by the Holy Spirit for that which he's teaching as an apostle and now as a prisoner. That he is God's divinely chosen messenger. And he wants his readers to know that. And what was revealed to him? A mystery which had been previously hidden. And that's something we have to explore. And that is question number three. What is the mystery of Christ? Particularly referred to right here in Ephesians 3, verse 5, okay? Paul used this term mystery, I think about 20 times in his epistles with the different shades of meaning. But when he uses this word mystery of Christ, what is he referring to? And particularly, I, I elaborate on this question here. I want you to think through it carefully. How could Paul say that this mystery was not made known to previous generations? Because as we learn in chapter 2, he does state, doesn't not this mystery, right? The Gentiles are partakers too in the blessings of God's redeemed humanity, of his church. 
He's reconciled Jew and Gentile. But in one sense, that shouldn't have been a surprise nor a mystery to previous generations. If we read our Bibles, we will see, starting back to the very beginning, certainly Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, the Abrahamic covenant, that God's plan from all eternity past was to bless the Gentiles, okay? That they too would be recipients of the gospel. You see that? I quoted Genesis 12, 3. You see it in many places, Isaiah 49, 6, Amos 9, 7, 9, 11, uh, 2 Samuel 7, 14. You see it throughout this, the Old Testament, this, this idea that God, yes, chose the Jews, but they'd be blessing to all nations. Let's, let's look just briefly at Genesis 12. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Reading from Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And catch this, and in you all the families of the earth of the earth shall be blessed. We see this promise repeated throughout the Old Testament. God's promised seed would be a blessing to all nations. So was it a mystery? And if so, what was the mystery? Yeah, Mickey. Interesting, yeah. I'm thinking, I'm thinking it was a mystery to the Jews and the Gentiles both in one particular way. Okay, that's what I'm thinking of. It was a mystery to both in one particular way. I'm, yes, Becky. We certainly need the Spirit the Spirit to help us. It's true. But it's interesting, we also see, you know, when Christ was on the road to Emmaus, there was an expectation, wasn't there, that the disciples at the time should have known of Christ the Messiah, his death and his resurrection. So you're right, certainly we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us to help us understand Scripture, to interpret Scripture. But there's an expectation that you should know this. And, and it wasn't like this promise to the Gentiles was some, uh, excuse me, to Abraham was some obscure <laughs> promise it wasn't it was the bedrock foundational to the very covenant of his people so why was it a mystery as paul declared any others yeah right so it wasn't meant fully to be understood until explained much like the parables they opened eyes and ears to see and to believe right well this is what i think is opening up do you have a yeah sergio i'll give it a try in a sense, yeah, I mean, it wasn't an effective. Certainly we see evidence of some Gentiles coming to the Lord, at least interested. We see some proselytes, you know, prior to Christ. But certainly Christ's death upon the cross certainly was what all the covenant pointed towards, okay? That the ultimate blessing, Abrahamic blessing, the ultimate seed was Christ and through him would come the blessing, but let me get to what I'm really getting at. This is, I think, an important point. I think a discerning Jew, although many did miss this, granted, would have seen that through his people, the Jews, chosen people, that blessings would come to the nations. But how that blessing would come as well, and what it would mean, there wasn't, even before Christ, there was some proselytizing taking place. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to enter the covenant community, you basically had to become a Jew. You had to go through the rite of circumcision. You had to be a Jew, become like them to enter the community. And part of that process in that covenant community was being circumcised. In other words, you basically had to become Jewish. Okay? So the word excitation, God may bring in some Gentiles. Oh yeah, he's going to make the Gentiles Jews. That's not what he's saying here. He's not making Gentiles Jews. He's making one new man out of the two. And that's what they were fighting. That's what Paul was contesting for after this first missionary journey in Acts 15. Remember the Council of Jerusalem? We have all these Gentiles responding to the, responding to the gospel. What do we do? Right? Some were saying, we'll circumcise them. <laughs> Become Jews like us and follow the law. Paul says, no, no. He understood. It had been revealed to him. The mystery was not only that Gentiles would be coming 
would be incorporated into this gospel blessing, the way in which God would do it, making one new man. Does that make sense? Okay, we're going to keep probing that thought. Okay, that's germane. That's pertinent to understanding, I believe, what's happening in the book of Ephesians, that God is making one new man out of the two. He's just not making more Jews, okay? <laughs> like them. He's doing something fundamentally wholly different, okay? Jews and Gentiles, one new man. Thus, the mystery. This is in verse 6. The Gentiles have become, the language here doesn't quite capture it in the English. Just lost my place. Let me go back here. Verse 6. Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise. In the Greek here, Paul is using a preface to each of these words, with or co. And in a sense, you can translate that the Gentiles have become co-heirs, co-body, co-sharers, okay, in the gospel. Equal partners in the gospel. He's been making up words, okay? <laughs> That's what Paul is to emphasize that point. They are co-heirs, co-body, co-sharers. God has created one spiritual man from the two, and now there is one body, one faith, one baptism, as we'll talk about in Ephesians 4, okay? Thus the mystery. The mystery was not that God would bless the Gentiles. The mystery was rather how he would do it. The incorporation of believing Gentiles and Jews into one new man. That's the mystery. Well, how was this mystery made known to the Apostle Paul? And how is it made known to us today? Question number four. None. By revelation. Right. And to us through the Holy Spirit using the word of God. Right. What Becky said earlier. Exactly. Good nanda. Well said. Now, how did it come to Paul? Do you remember the story? How did it come to him? How did the revelation come to him? Yeah, forcefully, yes. What's that? On the road to Damascus. Yeah, right? Right. Blindness, blinded light, right? voice, right? God arrested Paul's attention, to say the least. <laughs> right? And he, on his sovereign initiative, revealed Christ to the Apostle Paul and his mission as one who is to be sent to the Gentiles. And we too now read of that mystery revealed to us through the word of God, particularly here as Paul has, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, captured it here in this letter to the Ephesians. That we may know this mystery as well. So it comes to us by God's word. Today we can read God's word. And we read the Old Testament as our story as well. What I wanted to show you in the video was this one tribe, the Kimyol tribe of Indonesia. You may ask, I may ask, what does this little tribe in a mountainous region of Indonesia have to do with the Jews of the Old Testament? In one sense, nothing, but in another sense, everything to do with those Jews in the Old Testament. See, what we're reading in the Old Testament now, it's our history too. Yes, it's the history of God's chosen people, the Jews, but now it's our history as well. We can tap into the stream of Old Testament revelation. It's for us as well. We are co-heirs, co-partakers, so to speak. Yes, in the stream of revelation, this gospel revelation, this mystery has been made known to us today through his word. Well, now we're really getting to the meat of it. Question five. What is the role of the church as relates to this mystery? And secondly, to whom does the church witness according to Hebrews 3.10? So what is the role of the church as relates to this mystery? Mm-hmm. Okay, the new humanity, yeah. Huh? But how does it relate to the mystery? To bear witness of it? Okay. Yeah. Good. 
the church is really the main exhibit, okay, so to speak, <laughs> the centerpiece of God's redeeming work, of his reconciling work. As I mentioned in Ephesians 1.10, that Christ is uniting all things under his rule, under his headship, right? Exhibit A is the church, the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile, one new humanity, right? And we are the ones that witness of this mystery, in a sense, we are the mystery. <laughs> you could say, revealed to whom? To the world. Yeah, what, is, what does it say here in the text? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Yes, we're going to talk about that. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. That's question six. But yes, what is the role of the church? The church bears witness and testimony, reveals this mystery to the cosmic powers that be, right? The church is the focal point of world history where God's purposes, the Father's plan, chapter one, enacted by Christ, executed by Christ, chapter two is revealed to his creation, right? The church, the focal point of all history, the church is the focal point of what God is doing in Christ, this is deep stuff. I was, um, for years, I studied uh, international history, international politics, international economics. That was part of my undergraduate degree. And it was just, I remember going through all these classes, and it was just so hard at times to make sense of it all. You know, I took a class here on ancient China, Shogun Japan, on Genghis Khan, industrialism in Britain. Civil War, and I was just trying to put it all together, you know, I'm just taking these, these classes, that, how does this fit together, Lord, just, you know, and it just seemed at times it was so difficult to make sense of what I was studying. It all seemed like chaos. It was hard to see God in it all. Then I had the opportunity to go back in my graduate studies from this and study history from a decidedly Christian, biblical worldview. Oh, what a difference it made. History came alive. History was no longer just these endless cycles of violence and random events, okay? I could begin to see the hand and purposes of God being worked out as I studied the church, as I studied the expansion of, and even the persecution of the church in different cultures and times. I said, let's see that history had a purpose and a destination, which is Christ. With that in mind, I want to read you a quote that I was reading this week from John Stott along those lines that I thought was helpful. John Stott expresses it like this. Secular history concentrates its attention on kings, queens, and presidents on politicians and generals, in fact, on VIPs. The Bible concentrates, rather, on a group called the saints, often little people, insignificant people, unimportant people, who are, however, at the same time, God's people, and for that reason are both unknown to the world and yet well-known to God. Secular history concentrates on wars, battles, and peace treaties, followed by yet more wars, battles, and peace treaties. The Bible concentrates rather on the war between good and evil, on the decisive victory won by Jesus Christ over the powers of darkness, on the peace treaty ratified by his blood, and on the sovereign proclamation of an amnesty for all rebels who repent and believe. Again, secular history concentrates on the changing map of the world as one nation defeats another and annexes its territory and on the rise and fall of empires. The Bible concentrates rather on a multinational community called the church, which has no territorial frontiers, which claims nothing less than the whole world for Christ and whose empire will never come to an end. If you want to understand history, 
understand the church and you will understand what God is doing in history, his purposes, the mystery of Christ, the mystery of God being revealed through Christ and his church. He's reconciling all things to himself, starting with Jew and Gentile, you and me in the church for all to see. That's what secular history misses. That's what we can see through the revelation of God as we study history. God's purposes is marching forth through in the church. So you want to know what God's doing right now in this world? What was that? He's conquering. But not in the way we expect, would we? We look at countries like China and all the talk in the political circles is about unfair trade practices in China. All the talk is about human rights abuse in China. All the talk is about just this viral economy has taken forth, consuming all our gas and jacking up prices in China. That's what our talk is. God's doing in China. Growing his church. 105 million, this is a very conservative estimate, Christians and counting. 105 million and counting. That's according to Operation World. What is God doing in the Middle East? Look at Iran. All we hear about is the crazy Ahmadinejad. You know him and his crazy rants. Iran, 500 believers, max, in 1979. Over 100,000 believers in Iran. The church is growing exponentially in Iran right now, despite persecution. God is growing his church. That's what he's doing. Look what's happening right now. You follow the news, right? In Egypt, right? In Libya. What's happening all over these protests? In Yemen, Jordan, Tunisia, which really started all off. I, I can't tell you exactly what's going to happen and what the implications of all this is in some of these countries. But I know this, that Christ is building his church. He's using all peoples and all means even persecution, to do it. By the way, I don't know how much I can say, but we're, we as Sovereign Grace are sending a team to that very region, North Africa. It's been in the works for a year and a half training. It's going to be happening this year, a team to North Africa. Praise God. You want to know what God's doing in the world? Look at Palm Vista. Yeah, I know, we're not impressive. Oh, it's impressive to God. That's what he's doing. It's Ephesians 2. It's Ephesians 3. That's what he's doing. Look around. See what he's doing. Oh, much more I can say about that. Oh, the church. Thank you, Lord. Well, we, as a church, reveal this mystery, then revealed to Paul. It's now seen, experienced in the church, this reconciliation, this one to humanity, defined by the gospel. And we are a witness to what? As we mentioned earlier, the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Who in the world are they? <laughs> what do you think? You see that term five times in Ephesians. Spiritual realm, yeah. Spiritual realm, meaning? Yeah, you got it, man. Angels and demons. I, I, I wouldn't expect that when I'm reading that. You expect that? So I'm thinking, yeah, we're like a witness to the world, right? I think that's true. But we're witness to all creation, okay? Not just humanity, we're a witness to the angels. The angels are marveling. They're not omniscient, okay? They, they want to peek. What's God doing here? They're looking down with amazement. This mystery being revealed in the church. We are a living witness. Yes, to the angels, but who else? The demons as well, right? And we're proof of their judgment as well of their doom as they see Christ's purposes enacted through the church. Wow. That's heady stuff. So yes, we as a church, we're witness to the world. Those around us, in South Florida, in Miami, in the world, but don't stop there. We're a witness to the cosmic powers that be. All of creation. We don't just go and witness. No, no, we, we are a witness. Okay, our lives together, that we live together as one people in unity. All that theme of unity is so important in Ephesians. We're going to see a big time next week in chapter four and on 
Why is this such a big deal, this unity, this oneness? Just so we can get along and not have any fights? Oh, it's bigger than that. It's our witness. It's a ministry we're revealing, our oneness. The gospel brings together Jew and Gentile alike, different nationalities, ethnicities, together as one people, as a witness to the cosmos. That's where our unity is so important. That's where our marriage is so important. Ephesians 6. Oh, we'll get in there, okay? See, I, I want to embed oh, these imperatives that we're going to talk about in the bigger context of what Paul's speaking about so we can really understand what's happening here. Why is he making these points? He adds oh, the depth and the meaning to what he calls us to do and who he calls us to be. All right. So question six, I think we answered that. We are a testimony to the cosmos. I find it fascinating the way in which God has shown forth. Look at this, ver- this phraseology in verse 10. So through the church, the what? Manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Manifold wisdom, variegated wisdom. His multicolored, you can actually literally translate it that way, his multicolored wisdom. That's the church. May be known. With that in mind, I want to read another quote here. I just want to marvel here at God's wisdom to the church. This is something perhaps we don't spend enough time doing, marveling at what God has done in and through his church. Let's marvel at his manifold wisdom and the way he's chosen to display it. I'm going to read here from Montgomery, James Montgomery voice here. Listen to these words. When Satan rebelled against God, and carried the host of fallen angels, now demons, with him into eternal ruin, God could have crushed the rebellion and annihilated Satan and his host forever. That would have been just and reasonable. It might have even been merciful, for if God had gone on to create Adam and Eve, as he had no doubt determined to do beforehand, Satan would not have been there to tempt them. The pair would not have fallen and sin and death would not have passed upon the race. He could have done that. But this would not have shown God's manifold wisdom. It would have shown his power and even perhaps his mercy. But it would not have shown that God's way, the way of truth and righteousness is the only really good way and the only sure path to happiness. So, instead of annihilating Satan, God took an entirely different path. Quote, I have already determined to create a race called man, and I know in advance, because I know all things, that Satan will seduce him from my righteousness and plunge him into misery. Satan will think he is one. But while Satan is doing that, turning the human race against me and setting individual human beings against one another and even against themselves, I will begin to create a new people who will glory in doing what is right, even when it is not popular, and who will delight in pleasing me even when they suffer for it. Satan will say, Your people serve you only because you protect them, only because you provide for them materially. But here and there, in a great variety of ways, I will allow them to be greatly abused and persecuted. And I will show by their reactions that not only will they continue to praise me in their suffering and thus bring glory to my name, but that they will be even happier in their sufferings, then Satan's people will be with their maximum share of human prestige and possessions. That, my friends, is the manifold wisdom of God. It's not our wisdom, is it? That's not my wisdom. Wouldn't have been my ways. Yeah, I'm with the annihilating Satan. Just get rid of him, right? No. I'm going to keep him around. I'm going to show my wisdom, my power, my mercy, 
my love. I'm going to show my wisdom through redeeming a people for myself. A people who appraise me in suffering and hardship and in an experience the glory of the Lord, even in suffering. That's the church. That's the manifold witness of God. That's the manifold wisdom of God. Isn't that cool? That's what we see. We are the manifold wisdom of God. The church. Mm. Good. Appreciating what God has done, pursuing holiness as well. Yes. Anyone else? I'm just looking, just looking to apply this to our hearts right now. Yeah, Bentley. That's great. This is the recording, yes. What can seem like the mundane, everyday life. We see God's perspective on it all, don't we? And it awakens us. We see his glory even in the mundane, what he's doing in the church that we can often miss, can't we? We need this revelation. We do. We need it, don't we? We can miss it so easily, can't we? Yes, David. That's a great point too, David. Yes, we are part of God's story, what God is doing. We can sit so absorbed about, Lord, what is your personal will for my life? And I'm saying it's not wrong to ask questions, to discern direction. There's wisdom applied there. There's scripture to determine your direction and step. But the reality is we can get so absorbed about us, what God has for me and my personal plan. No, it's, no, it's what God's doing. This is his story. It's his plan. Yes, excellent. Great, just recording. Yes, it reminds you of, yes, definitely the story of Job. It expands our understanding of what is happening, perspective once again, that suffering is not aimless and purposeless. No. Yes, Gabby. That's great. Yes. I find this enlivening, energizing, this radically God, Trinitarian-centric view. <laughs> we do need it some self-focused, don't we? This is what God's doing. Yes, he's using you and me for his great plan and purpose. The manifold wisdom as a witness to the cosmos of his greatness, of his glory. It's happening in the church. And like Palm Vista is one local expression of what God is doing worldwide. Right? Because mm. meaning it's the gravitas there, isn't there? As it should be. Ah, great. Well, I just want to linger there for a few moments. It's worth doing. But let's move on to verse 7. There's more to this chapter. I have question number 7. As we look, there's a phrase there. Says, what are the riches of his glory, which Paul appeals to in his prayer? So now we're moving on to this last part of Ephesians 3, his prayer which he started in verse 1, now he's continuing now in verse 14, really through verse 21. He makes a statement that according to the riches of his glory, what are these riches of his glory that he, Paul, is referring to? This is the basis, okay, now of his prayer. According to the riches of his glory. From Ephesians Looking at verses Ephesians 2, 4, and 7, Ephesians 3, 8, other clues. What is he referring to? Could you put it in your own words or in the words of the text? Yeah, Nando. Okay. Yes, Holy Spirit, immeasurable grace and mercy. Yes, good. Yes, Elias. Grace and mercy. Yes. Good. I think you guys are you're hitting it. Good job. The riches of his glory. That can encompass many things. It's certainly the way Paul is using it as I read it in Ephesians, right? Referring to particularly his grace and his mercy. Because his grace and mercy, he appeals in this amazing, confident, bold, outrageous, audacious prayer that we have preserved for us now in Ephesians 3. It's according to his riches and his glory, i.e. according to his grace and mercy, his wisdom and his power, we have access to God. And we can pray. We have access to God because it's grace and mercy, wisdom and power. We may approach him. Yes, we Gentiles may approach him. We who are once far off from the covenant promises, aliens have now brought near and we can approach God. We who are now co-heirs with Christ. On that basis, 
then Paul prays this wonderful prayer. Let's just walk through this prayer. It is so much is going on in this prayer. It can be kind of bewildering. I mean, it's, it's great stuff. We can kind of get lost at times. Let's take a look at it. What is he praying for? Verse 16. He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in an inner being. That we be strengthened with his Holy Spirit. Ah, great prayer. Does not each one of us need to be strengthened with, with his Holy Spirit, right? In times of temptation. Yeah. Oh, Lord, strengthen me through your Holy Spirit. In those times of those difficult moral choices. Oh, in witnessing and proclaiming the gospel. Lord, yes, strengthen me with your Holy Spirit. What else? Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Another way you could translate that is may Christ, that he may settle down in your hearts. This is a permanent dwelling. That he may settle in your hearts, in your heart, and control your heart as a rightful owner. May he dwell in you. This is true, but we're talking about experientially as well. May you know Christ who dwells and controls you who is the affection of your heart. May you then be able to grasp the full dimensions, right, of Christ's love. Verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the what? Breadth, length, height, and depth. Stop there for a second. Do we may experience how broad the love of Christ is? What does that mean? It can mean many things. It's certainly Christ's love in this context of Ephesians, is broad enough to incorporate Jew and Gentile. His love. It is long enough to last for all eternity. It's deep enough to reach down to the lowest, most degraded sinner. Oh, and it's high enough to exalt him in heaven. That is Christ's love. And this is this curious phrase in 19. And to know the love of Christ, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Hmm. So to know the unknowable <laughs> is what he's basically saying, right? And that was question eight. What does it mean to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? Isn't this a contradiction? What does Paul mean here? What do you think? Any thoughts there on question eight? Okay, so experience, certainly this love. I think that's true. He, I think he's talking about an experiential dimension here of his love, certainly. Yeah. It's a really difficult question. And yeah, good answers. Yeah, I mean, I think he's, you know, often heard it said, you know, we as Christians can know truly, even though we will not know fully, okay? We'll never exhaust or know fully the love of God, okay? In one sense, because we're not omniscient, okay? But we can know truly. Just because we can't know fully, we can know truly. We can know truly as revealed to us, both in Scripture, as we've experienced in our redemption, we can experience this love. And we can know truly this love, can't we? He wants us to know more and more. And we're going to have all eternity to know and plumb and explore Christ's love. And we'll never get to the end of it. All eternity. Well, it's an all eternity, and we'll never get there. There'll be more and more to experience of his love. So we've got an itty-bitty little glimpse of his love, and it's glorious. We're going to keep exploring that, understanding more the depths of his love for us for all eternity. So it's not futile. But we can know truly, but we have the delight of experiencing it more and more fully for all eternity. And then he concludes with this, I mean, he just keeps ratcheting up the prayer, he just keeps getting, I mean, more incredible. And then he, then he makes a statement in verse 19 at the end, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What? All the fullness of God? What does that mean? If you know what it means, help me out, okay? <laughs> oh. Yes, in that sense, yeah, the Holy Spirit, certainly indwelling us, filling us. Yeah. I think it's an extension of what we just talked about, isn't it? That we would know more and more of God, who he is, and his love through Christ Jesus. Right? The breadth, the depth, the height, the love. The depth of his love. Oh. 
that, that's great. I haven't seen that wiping out. That's good. There's a corporate dimension that we can experience this love, right? That we couldn't individually in one sense. I agree with you. That's true. Mm-hmm. Great connection. Yes. Excellent connection, guys. Love that. Do some good biblical exegesis there. That's excellent. Yeah. The fullness of God. It's not just individual. It's a corporate dimension as well as we experience the fullness of Christ and his love. It's experienced in and through the church. Ah, yes. Great. Well, with that prayer of love, I want to pause that thought and just briefly, I'm cheating a little bit, I just want to jump into chapter 4. Just just for a moment. We'll do it next next month, okay? But I want to make the connection for us. How is being, question 9, rooted and grounded in Christ's love or knowing this love necessary to carry out the exhortation in Ephesians 4.1? What is that ex- exhortation? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've received? Excuse me. And then verse 2. And to walk out this calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You see it? The command, the imperative, the how we should live has just flown, has just flowed, I think purposely in Paul's mind from the very prayer he just prayed in chapter 3 and the very love that he's been expounding on in the first three chapters. Whenever there's an imperative, how we should live, look close by, particularly in Paul's letters, and you can see the indicative, okay? The motivation, the basis for why we can even love one another in the first place, okay? As we are filled with the knowledge of his love, as Christ indwells our hearts, we are then able in his strength that he provides to love others, okay? So this prayer he's praying isn't just, I just want to experience more of your love. Yes, I do. But I want to experience your love that I may love others that you have loved me, okay? There's an empowering and an equipping that's taking place. Yes, that we may experience it personally, then we may also give it out as well, okay? And live it. There's legs to his prayers in chapter 3, and it's found in verse chapter 4. And I'll stop there, because we're not there yet, okay? I just want you to see it. It's all over the place. Well, he ends this prayer with a wonderful doxology, verses 20 and 21. And I ask the question here. Let me just read it again, verse 20, 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, the word in Greek is like super abundantly, okay? It's just, I think he's making up another word here. Just can't even, human language has a, is, is confined here. It's like he's trying to bust out a conventional language to explain how abundantly, okay? He's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Ah, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. What is this power that Paul is praying about in Ephesians 3.20? And where does it reside? According to our text. Yes, the Holy Spirit. Yes, indeed. The topic definitely, certainly we see all parts, all members of the Trinity, all three there, but certainly the Holy Spirit has been emphasized, is it not? Right? Ah, the power, good, I mean, that raised Christ from the dead. It's that same power that's at work within us. Ephesians 2, right, Emmy? We spoke about that last week. It's that same power that raised Christ from the dead, that raised us from the dead. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive to Christ. He put his spear within us. He regenerated us, right? He made us alive and new in Christ. That power is at work within us. The power of the Holy Spirit that is within us. Yes, we would experience it and we would be controlled and empowered by it, or I should say by him, that is the Holy Spirit, yes, that dwells within us, in us. The resurrection power of Christ working in us. So church, we read all this. This is how you pray. What a model of prayer we have in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 right here. We would do well, wouldn't we, to know these Pauline prayers well. And they are prayers. They express our heart as well. Do we pray these prayers for ourselves, for our family, for others as well? How about verse 20 in closing as well? Don't want to lose you here. This is an important point. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask, I can ask a lot. 
or think. Even think. You know, there's a lot of prayers. I'm afraid of prayer. I'm afraid to pray them. <laughs> I don't know if they're your will, Lord. You know? I don't know. I'm thinking them. I don't know if I should pray them. Is that legal? Can I pray those prayers? You know? I don't know what your will, Lord. Okay? I believe we should, by the way, express our hearts and burdens to the Lord. We are encouraged to do so repeatedly in Scripture. The reality is, he's able, not, only, not, not just able to do what I can think. No, no, no. Far more abundantly than I can even think or imagine in us. That's his power to work within us. What he's want to do. Does that inform your prayers? How you pray? Wow. This is really true. This is just a theological exercise, okay? Yes, we are working hard to understand the flow of the argumentation of Paul's logic. That's much more than that, though. I want to hear this is, this is food for our souls, is it not? Although we may pray these prayers, we may be strengthened in our innermost being by his Holy Spirit that Christ would dwell in our hearts and fill us so that we'd understand and experientially know his love and his power at work within us in his church, and that we would ask of him bold, audacious prayers. Yes, he will answer them according to his will, but may, may he be glorified as we come asking, knowing that he can do more, far more, super abundantly more than we'd ask, think, or imagine. That is our God. And that's what he's doing in you. For you were once dead in your sins, and now you are alive in Christ. And that power is at work within you. May we pray to experience that more and more as we're used for his glory. Well, that concludes chapter 3. And with that in mind, I want to suggest the theme of the book of Ephesians. I have left that until now. I've given you a chart, at least what I know you've worked on your own chart. I gave you what I did. It's not the only correct answer. It's not even necessarily the correct answer. It's what I've done. But I left that very last sidebar in the far right empty. And that is the overarching theme of Ephesians. And I wanted to wait a little bit. I wanted to develop it. We talked about Christ uniting all things under his headship. Chapter 1. I think that is the key verse, 9 and 10 of Ephesians. Chapter 1. We see that happening Jew and Gentile in the church, the mystery which has been revealed to Paul, which is now the witness of the cosmos. That is God's plan. And that is what I think Paul is getting at in Ephesians. And so I've chosen, this is not unique to me, um, but my title for Ephesians is One New Man. One New Man. One New Humanity, you could say. It includes male and female. Yes, it does. But One New Man in Christ so that is what I've chosen for my theme. I think we've seen it worked out here in the first three chapters, and now we're going to see the implications of that truth and how we relate to one another as a new man, as we relate to one another as father and children, and sons, as husband and wife, as slave and master, and everyday life in the church. How we come together and live a life walking worthy of the gospel as one new humanity in Christ called the church. And there you have the book of Ephesians. So with that in mind, we have about a couple more minutes before nine. Do we have any questions just to wrap things up here? (laughs) Great. Well, that is the word of God at work, isn't it? And that's what we want to experience. How you can draw your attention to one word that you could have read 10, 30, 40 times before. And he just highlights that one word. But why is that there? And then you open your eyes to give a broader understanding and context for what that may be there and what it means for you in your life. That's the wonder of God's word, and that's the work of his Holy Spirit. As we are students of the word, the Holy Spirit will use those things we're studying to bring to our attention. I trust he is and will. Thank you, Nando. Thank you for your hard work here. And just being here tonight and studying the word of God, may this be rich. And may you, by the end, have the book of Ephesians pretty well set in your mind. It's themes, it's contours, the flow of the, I think, letter that we have that you can do studies. Even when you're not the Word of God in front of you, you can do little Bible studies in your head on Ephesians. That day will come.
You may not have it all memorized, but the truths are fixed in there. Chapter 1, 2, and 3. And you can access that. You could be driving on the road. You could be wherever you are, in line, and you have these truths there. You can access them. The day's coming. That's what we're working towards, having the Word of God implanted in our hearts that we can just, it's there for a meal whenever we want it. Right? And God's going to use that. There's Holy Spirit to bring us hope and encouragement and at time conviction as well as that word is planted in our soul. So you are doing that work and it's going to have a long-lasting fruit. Yes. Church, yes. In the church, yeah. Yes. Isn't that a great summary? Chapter 3? Thanks for mentioning that, Gabby. Yeah, you know, we just scratched the surface, guy. I skipped like half the verses here. I mean, there's just so much there. I just wanted to stop, you know. Great. Thanks for pointing that out. Yes. To him be the glory in the church. Ah, uh, Yes. In Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, yes, may it be, Lord, for us, for our children, our children's children, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And amen to you. All right. Thanks, guys.